what a privilege it is to be here. And yeah, I could share a lot of funny stories about Tim and I and some things we went through, but I can tell you this, he is a wonderful man of integrity and he has served the Lord faithfully through all these years. Every single church that he has ever gone to has grown. Every church he's ever gone to has won people to the Lord. And I know you're blessed to have a pastor like Brother Tim, and he feels blessed to have a church like you are. And it's a privilege to be with you here today. My wife, Julie, is along with us, so we're just delighted to have this opportunity. Please turn with me in God's Word today to Psalm 46. Just have your Bibles open or your iPhone or iPad or whatever you have, and we're just going to be going verse by verse today as we look together in God's Word. Ninety percent of all Americans consistently, and sometimes it's higher than that, depends on how you ask the question, will tell you that they believe in a supreme being or higher power or God or something like that. But what does that really mean? I think it's more confused now in America than it's ever been before. Aren't you glad for the revelation of the Word of God that tells us who God is? And most of all, that in His Son, Jesus, we know perfectly who God really is. And all through the Bible, we're able to draw from the Scriptures to understand who God is and how He manifests Himself. And today I want to look at Psalm 46, because here in this passage are three aspects of who God is. It's so very important for us to remember. Now you say, well, Steve, you know, I've been a Christian a long time, and you know, I've read the Bible through several times, and I've gone to Sunday school and all of that stuff. Let me tell you something. There's always a need for a fresh reminder of who God is. And not only who God is, but allowing Him in our lives to be the God that He truly is. Let's look together in God's Word, beginning in Psalm 46. But first, again, let's pray. Father, thank You for this, Your Word. Thank You for this moment. Give us insight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. I want to share with you a first concept that comes from this passage about who God is and how we need to let Him be who He is in our lives, is our God is a refuge. That's what it says. God is a refuge. If you go back to biblical times, and particularly this word in the the original, the meaning is that strong, fortified place that people would flee to. Now, the historical context of this passage is very important. Most scholars attach this passage with what happened to Judah in 701 B.C. Let me refresh your mind a little bit. You remember that after Solomon died, the kingdom was split in two. Rehoboam came to the throne, and he didn't rule very well. He wasn't very wise, and the kingdom split in two. In 721, the northern part, which was the more wicked of the two, and you read in the Scriptures how their kings didn't follow the Lord and, and all the abominations that took place up in the northern kingdom. In 721, they fell to the Assyrians. Assyrians were the strongest power on earth at that time. They were on the march. They seemed unstoppable. Twenty years later, the Assyrians have now come to the door of Jerusalem. And you read in the Scripture the account of the general of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, Rabshakeh, 
comes and threatens the uh, Jewish people. They're locked away in Jerusalem. In fact, he tells them, he says, it's hopeless. You, You don't even need to try. There's been no other God that's been able to stand before us. Why in the world do you think that you can? And it's in that context that in the celebration of how God ultimately would deliver them that the psalmist declares, God is our refuge and strength. He is the place that we run to. And now in ancient times, again, think about, we, we kind of have a reversal today. We think of the big city as sort of the scary place we don't want to go to, and we feel a lot safer in the countryside. Actually, in biblical times, it was the opposite. It, the outer parts, the countryside, were the scary places, people roaming around and who knows what would happen. It was the cities, the strongholds, and cities often had a strong tower. That was the place of safety. And what the psalmist is saying is, our God is our refuge. Does anyone need a refuge today? I think we do. We need a place to run to. Proverbs 18.10 said, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. It's a place of safety. Our God is a refuge. We are in this world with trials and troubles and tribulations. And the imagery here helps us to understand. Look at verse 2 again. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Again, a little biblical background here is very helpful. The mountains were for the Jews as as time went on through their history was was the ultimate place of safety in fact in in battles they they found that they were much more successful fighting in the mountains than they were in the plains and there's actually an illustration of this in first kings chapter 20 the arameans came and this was in the northern kingdom but the arameans came and said uh we, we're not having much success with the Israelites up in the mountains. Now think about it, the mountains, kind of like Afghanistan, it's kind of a problem for our troops, these steep places, and the enemy can jump out and ambush you. And that's the way the Israelites have become very adept at that. So the Arameans said, we, we're not doing very well with them in the mountains. And literally they said in 1 Kings chapter 20, their gods are a god of the mountains. See, that's what they had come to believe, the Arameans. But it said, let us fight in the valley and we will be stronger. There was only one problem with that. God overheard it. God overheard what they said about him just being a God of the mountains, and he didn't like that. So he sent word through the prophet, even to Ahab, who was far from being a righteous king, but God wanted to prove a point. He said, because they've said, I'm a God of the, just the mountains and not of the valleys, I'm going to give you a tremendous victory in the valleys. Now, let's translate that back into our time. There are a lot of people who think that our God is just a God of the mountaintops. Christians are, you know, they're really all about praising the Lord as long as everything in their life is going well. But you let them get in a valley, and then we'll see what they really are made of. Then we'll see what kind of God they truly have. Our greatest opportunity... And no one likes trials and tribulations, but this is what James meant when he said we rejoice in our trials and tribulations. Our greatest opportunities are in the midst of the valleys. It is in those moments 
that we can say, our God is a refuge. And it's in those moments that He gives us the victory in the time of the valleys that we learn what a great God He truly is. Israel had to learn that lesson. And they were able to defeat their enemies because our God is not a God of just the mountains. And thank God for the mountaintops. Thank God for the blessings. Thank God for the goodness. But also when you go through the valleys, David, I believe, said, Yea, though I walk even through the what? The valley of the shadow of death. That's about as low a valley as you can go through. No matter what, he would not be afraid, for God was with him. But there's something else here. The latter part of that says, And though the mountains slip in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Just as the mountains were considered to be a very safe place for the Israelites, opposite of that was the, the picture of the sea. If you study Israel's history, you would understand they were not a maritime power. In fact, they were usually quite disastrous in anything that they ever tried. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 22, you'll read that Jehoshaphat built a fleet of ships and they all sank. I mean, the Israel Navy was not anything to be feared. And if you search the Psalms, you'll find the rocks and the mountains are always the place of safety, but the sea is a scary place. I don't know about you, but the sea is still a scary place for me. People have always told me, boy, you really need to go on a cruise, Steve. Oh, a cruise is wonderful. But I don't know, maybe I've watched too many Jaws movies or, or you know, National Geographic specials. I, I don't know what I'm saying. I really don't want any part of that. And my wife can tell you I get, I get seasick, you know, just very easy on anything, just a little boat, a uh, little paddle boat on a, on a, on a river, so I, a, a lake. So I don't even try. But for the Israelites... The sea was especially tumultuous in its imagery and a scary place. Now, what's God's Word saying to us here? Listen again to what the psalmist says. Though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. What's he saying? Though your most safe thing that you're trusting in Slip into the scariest thing you know. Our God is a refuge. I don't know what the safest thing that you think of today may be. It could be financial. You've worked all your life. and You've developed a little nest egg. You've gotten out of debt. You've followed the Dave Ramsey little baby steps and all that stuff. You've done everything right. Now that becomes your mountain. Or maybe your health. You've always just been strong and healthy. I don't know what it is. The stability around you. But you know, he said, even the mountains begin to quake. And every time I speak to a congregation, this many people, I know there's some folks right now having some earthquakes in their lives. There's things all your life that you've, you've put your feet on, and they've always been there for you. They were your strength. They were your reliability. And suddenly they begin to quake, and they fall into the roaring foam of the tumultuous sea of uncertainty, and you don't know how you're going to go through tomorrow. Your God is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Who is our God? He is 
a refuge. But look further with me in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, I just got through talking about how the Israelites feared the sea, but the opposite was true in regard to the river. Go back to the book of Genesis, and I believe that the book of Genesis is a literal account. And it says that there were four rivers in the Garden of Eden, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates, four great rivers. Scholars think the Pishon and the Gihon were the Indus and Nile. But at that time, these four great rivers came together. Rivers shift through the course of time, but at that time, that's where they came through. That's what the Bible says. And the meaning of that is four being a perfect number. If you know biblical numerology, especially if you study the book of Revelation, you know that four is a number of creation completeness. That's why you have the four living creatures before the throne of God representing perfect creation. I believe it's literal, but I think it's also symbolic in the sense of the perfection of all creation will ultimately praise God. And so... Here, the waters flowed into the place of paradise. And in biblical times, and I think we're getting a feel of that in certain parts of the world today more than ever, water is considered so precious and the source of life. I find it interesting now we're all drowning. Uh, I don't know if you've had as much rain here in Rome area as we've had in Chattanooga. Uh, The place where my wife and I stay there on campus has two um, leaks in the roof. One of them literally is pouring, wouldn't you say? Uh, we have two pots, one, one to catch that one and one to catch this one. The good news is they're completing the new roof on everything this week, we hope, if it'll ever dry out. We've been so blessed that we forget how precious water is. Remember a couple of summers ago, we wondered if we were going to ever be able to wash our cars again. I mean, but in most areas of the world... It's not like it is here. We're well watered. And water is the very source of life. If you ever go walking on any trails or anything and you find where people had farms 100 years ago or 200 years ago, where'd they always build by? The creek, the river. Now, they paid the price for that sometimes when it would flood, but that was their, that was their access. That was their water they used for, for sustenance. So the water represented the, the provision of life, it represents joy. It represents the ultimate security. Now, back to the imagery here. Think about when Rabshakeh brings the army of the Syrians to the very gate of Jerusalem. Now, in those days, it was called siege warfare. And basically what you do is you surround them and you starve them out. Sometimes they had these war-making machines that were developed more sophisticatedly later to bring down towers. But particularly at the biblical time, it was mainly just to kind of, let's see if we're going to wait them out. Because they can't stand there forever. We can stay out here forever. They can't. Now Hezekiah, the king of of Judah at that time, was very wise. It wasn't exactly a secret that Assyria was on the march. The northern kingdom had already fallen. And he began preparation. And so a number of years before, he had gone out from the city to dig 150 feet down on the spring of Gihon and built an incredible aqueduct that is still there today in portions that brought water, and it was, it was called the, the uh, stream of Shiloh, there into Jerusalem. It came up to the pool of Siloam, which we find in the New Testament. There are a lot of events and things happened there. And they would draw out the water. Now think about it. As long as there was a water source, how long could they hold out? 
a long time. I mean, if you've got water, you can, you can exist. You have the water you need. You can even take it. You can have gardens. You can sprinkle on it. You can stay there a long, long time. What's the teaching here? When we're under siege in life, there is a river that makes glad the people of God. And it is the stream of the water of life in our lives. I don't care what trial or tribulation may come. There is a stream of living water in our hearts. In fact, Jesus would refer to this in John chapter 7. It was the great feast of the tabernacles. And if you remember some of the background, I know your pastor is a great teacher and he shares a lot of the scripture, so you're probably familiar with this. But in the feast of the tabernacles, the great feast, on the last day, the priest would literally bring a a libation offering of water from the pool of Siloam. They would come up into the temple. They would go around the altar seven times. They would pour it out as an offering before the Lord and declare, Yahweh, Yahweh, now send prosperity. It was a prayer that God would send the rains. And they would pour that out on the altar. And it was at that moment, at that very moment, Jesus said, if any man thirsty is thirsty, let him come unto me. And drink, and he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Do you see the significance of that? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. Come unto me. Remember he told the woman at the well about living water? Do you feel that today, ma'am, sir, young person in your heart? Is there a stream of living water that brings you a joy that the world can never, ever quench. This psalm has a lot of meaning for people that went through Katrina. I was a professor at the time at New Orleans Seminary. God blessed us in an incredible way by sparing us. The president asked me about five weeks before uh, Katrina hit in New Orleans, I had moved upon the request of the, the uh, president to come up here and be the the regional dean for the Atlanta campus. And so, where's our house and everything we would have lost? In fact, the house that we were in had about four and a half feet of water in it. We would have lost everything. We were preserved. But many were not. This psalm became a great source of strength for our school. We recounted it many, many times that God provided And God was our security. And God was our refuge in the midst of the trials. And so what I'm saying, the the encouragement here as they celebrate God's deliverance is that God gives us a strength that the world can never, ever take away. I've seen it. I've been a pastor a long time. I've seen people face death with peace in their heart. I've seen them do that. And speaking of hurricanes, there's a very interesting thing. I didn't know this about hurricanes. Maybe you do or did. When a hurricane passes over the water, even a storm like Katrina, which got up at one time to 180 mile an hour winds, thank God it dissipated before it hit the coast, but still was a huge tidal wave, a 30-foot tidal wave, highest ever record, or, or storm surge ever recorded in the United States that hit the Gulf Coast. Scientists tell us that even though the waters are turned up, just like the psalmist said, that if you go down into the depths of the water, 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, that under there the waters are undisturbed. That is a picture 
of us in the midst of the storm. Let the storms blow. Let the seas be tumultuous. But deep in our soul, we've got peace and joy like a river that cannot be disturbed. That's what the psalmist was saying. Our God is a river. Is He your river today? Do you need the living water of Jesus Christ? If anyone is thirsty, he said, let him come unto me and drink. But finally, let's look at the last part of the psalm, beginning in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. One of my favorite verses is when I'm doing pastoral care with people is Hebrews 13, 5. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That goes back to the promise first given in Deuteronomy. He will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God is in the midst of her, verse 5. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has brought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is our refuge. Everybody likes that. What a wonderful blessing it is to think of God as a strong tower we can run to. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Do you need a place to run to today? I mean, just run as fast as you can. And Lord, I'm just going to run into your name and your strength. And Lord, you're going to be my river. Hey, that, everybody likes that. You can preach that stuff all day and you'll get amens and nods and smiles and everything. And there are a lot of people who preach that and that's biblical. But you know what? That's not the whole story. There's one other thing about our God. And we're reminded in these verses, our God is ruler. Uh-oh. You mean it's not all just get, 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 get? Can't lose with the stuff I use. Let me tell you, man, what God's going to do for you today. You're down, you're out. Let me tell you, God's going to lift you up. Friend, run around the corner tomorrow. It's a blessing for you so big you can't imagine. All that stuff's true. And there are a lot of people packing churches today with that. But they never talk about submission. They never talk about lordship. They never talk about confessing sin. They never talk about repentance. They never talk about being humbled before God. It's all about how I can receive, how I can get. God becomes like a magic genie. We just sort of recite a formula and we just get and receive. Boy, that'll preach and that'll pack, but it's not the whole counsel of God. And that's why a lot of these things that you're seeing today, big movies, smiling, toothy, you know, evangelists, man, if I'd had all that hair, I could have been an evangelist. You know, they got the perfect hair and the perfect teeth and the perfect wife. I got the perfect wife. I just didn't have the perfect hair. But I mean, you know, and they're there and all these people can sing like angels and it's all wonderful and great. But never do you hear a word about what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus and submit to Him, and repent of your sins, and get the things out of your life that God's not pleased with. But you know what? The human soul needs to be purged. We need to make God ruler. And that's what this psalm this comes to. He reminds us, yeah, God's a refuge. Yeah, awesome. Well, boy, He's a river. But not unless He's going to be your ruler. Because this is what it was all about. Rebshekah, 
brought this letter to Hezekiah, and he said, go ahead and surrender. You don't have a chance. He said, I'll even provide you horses if you can find men to mount them. I don't even think you can do that. And Hezekiah had nothing that he could do but just take the letter in before God and say, Lord, it's all in your hands. And the prophet came and said, here's your deliverance. You see, what happened here was Hezekiah as king submitted to the king of kings. And when he did that, God said, now you'll have a deliverance. I'm not saying we don't have a gracious God who blesses us even though we don't deserve it. But I'm just saying this, that he is God enthroned and he must be your ruler. You're either submitting to him or you're resisting him. And look, it's very interesting. wish we had more time, but let's go down to verse 10. He says, cease striving and know that I'm God. This is an incredible. The actual word here is Rapha. You've probably heard it was actually a big counseling movement called Rapha at one time. But the idea of the cease striving, be at peace, peace be still. He was saying to Israel, quit struggling. Israel is an interesting name. Scholars kind of differ on the etymology of the word Israel. But if you go back, when, when, did, when did Jacob become Israel? Do you remember? Do you remember the wrestling with the angel of the Lord and all of that? And then he said, your name will be Israel. That's how you say it in Hebrew, Israel. That's how we often say it. But um, that word means we're not exactly sure one who strives with God or striving with God. The idea was that Israel was always going to be wrestling with God. They were, weren't they? They, they always were resisting, wrestling against God. That, Jacob was well named. And he's saying now, this, this wordplay, cease striving, let me be ruler. We have a lot of fancy definitions today for discipleship and that's the big thing right now. And boy, that's so biblical. Mathetes, the New Testament word, becoming disciples, following Jesus. You want a simple definition of discipleship? Quit resisting God. Surrender. That's a simple definition. You can make it as complex as you want, but what it really amounts to is at every point of your life, you say, I surrender. It's yours. Here's my talents. Here's my ability. Here's my life. Here's who I am. All to you, Lord. I surrender. I give up. It's not my agenda. It's yours. It's not my will. It's yours. Now you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now you're truly being a disciple. And that's what you lead others to do. Hey, I'm I'm surrendering. You want to do it? Also, let's go. Let's walk on this journey. Let's learn more of Him. You learn a lot from your children. I've got a grown daughter now who's married, lives in Atlanta, and uh, she's a wonderful Christian young lady, and her husband's a fine Christian man, and uh, they got married last summer. And Man, we're already pressuring them about grandkids. But anyway, uh, I have a son who's single and uh, graduated from New Orleans Seminary. He's uh, in counseling and be starting his Ph.D. this fall. He's single. Does anybody have any prospects? We're taking names. You know, he's a fine young man, lives in New Orleans. But anyway, um, when my daughter uh, was born, uh, she's, like I say, just as sweet as she can be now. But I will tell you, when she was a baby, she was a little wildcat. I, I mean, she was a handful. She was a mother's child. And I'm glad my mother's here, so she, my, my wife's here, that she can su- substantiate about motherhood with joy. I don't think we what, went out, you count on one hand the first three years, because nobody can handle her. 
the grandparents. I mean, she was just a wildcat. And getting together to get her to go to sleep at night. Did she even go to sleep through the night the first three years? I don't know. I, maybe hardly ever. I, it was, we actually, one night, we were, we were discussing this. We were so desperate and sleep-deprived. We said, I tell you what, let's one of us go to the local hotel tonight and get a good night's sleep, and then we'll swap the next night. But we couldn't work it out with the budget. That was the only thing. We just couldn't do it. Have a night through. Well, my wife started back to work as a nurse uh, part-time, and she would have to work sometimes in the evenings, and so I would have to get her down. Now, I don't want y'all to, I want y'all to listen very carefully because I don't want to be called afterwards by child abuse authorities, okay? I want you to understand what I did. She was just like, I mean, full of energy and just a wildcat and, you know, trying to get her down at night. So what I would do is I would rock her and I would put her in my arms. Now, I'm not squeezing her or constricting her in any way, I want you to know. But I put my arms around her where she would have maybe just a couple inches on each side. Now, she's doing this, you know, just wanting to get up. And, I, and every time I would, I would, you know, just make sure she couldn't get up and I'd just pat her and speak loving things to her, and, you know. I mean, she was just, again, a wildcat. This would go on. Some nights I finally, I just, I can't. I mean, she wins. But there were a lot of nights that I would do that, and she'd finally just get exhausted and go, <laughs> I'd put her over my shoulder and go put her in the bed. <clears throat> you won't find that in a child-rearing book, but it worked, you know. And got a great best bicep workout I ever had in my life, you know. It was just like going to the gym twice over. And I was working out a lot in those days. But anyway, <laughs> Now, if she was sitting, she'd laugh. She'd deny the whole thing ever happened. But anyway, it did. And she's just as sweet as pie. So be it at heart if your kids, are when they're growing up, they're a little wildcat, they can turn out great. I'm reminded of that picture with ourselves in God. Except this. I would sometimes give up. God never does. You can't. Remember Jacob, his name, Israel? He tried wrestling against the angel, and that didn't work out too well for him, did it? In the end, all he had to do was just go bink like that. And his, then he was, he was incapacitated. And the point is, you can't wear God out. He, he's so much stronger than you, so don't even try. You can wear yourself out. You can resist him. You can do what you want to do. But in the end, he's so strong, you can't win. And aren't you glad he's so strong? And aren't you glad that he doesn't give up on you? Aren't you glad he doesn't just say, okay, you can go. And sometimes, actually, God does allow people in their own will to be delivered over to the consequences. But I'm glad that my God is constricting me. How about you? I'm glad he's putting boundaries in my life. I'm glad that he's not letting me just run around and do whatever I want to do. He loves me so much that he's doing that. And when I exhaust myself and get to the end of myself and collapse into his loving arms, he's ready He's ready to take charge of my life. And so this psalm is a celebration of a nation that had resisted God. That's why they were split into two kingdoms. That's why the northern kingdom was conquered. But at this moment, at this very special moment, there was a king who went before God, laid out the letter, took his crown off, and said, Lord, you're ruler. And I give it over to you. And history records a very interesting and fascinating thing. Scholars today still try to figure this out, but we know the answer, don't we? Why did mighty Assyria, this giant empire, never conquer Judah? Hmm, what was the reason? 
you go back to the Assyrian records and they kind of just whitewash over it a little bit. They don't talk a lot about it. I can understand why. Because the Bible says that night an angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians. And Rabshakeh took his little army and went back and never came again. Because our God is God.